Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 38. It can be found on page 840 in the Pew Bible. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating at the Pharisee's in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. This is the word of God for the people of God. A number of years ago, a group of Christian missionaries became known as the one-way missionaries. It really wasn't just a number of years ago. It was over 150 years ago now. And they became as known as the one-way missionaries because they bought one-way tickets to the place where they were going to serve. They left their homes here in the United States and went all over to share the gospel, believing that they were never coming home. As if to to add a, a punctuation to this endeavor... Rather than packing what few possessions they had into trunks or suitcases, the one-way missionaries packed whatever they had into their own coffins, a symbol to them as much as anywhere else, anyone else that they were never coming back from the work that God was calling them to inhabit. One of these missionaries was a guy by the name of John Getty. He booked passage to the New Hebride Islands in the South Pacific. Getty truly never expected to return because every missionary who'd ever gone to the New Hebrides prior to him had been summarily executed by the people there. But Getty landed in the New Hebrides in 1848, and he began to work in ministry with the Vanuatuan tribes on the island. He he made headway with them until his death in 1872 of natural causes. When Getty died... The village elders buried him in the middle of town and they, they put a marker over his grave. Engraved on the, the marker were these words. When he arrived, there was no light. When he departed, there was no darkness. When did we as Christians begin to allow ourselves to believe that the living God calls us to go to safe places and do easy things? The cross was not meant to make us safe. In fact, you could argue that the cross is the most dangerous symbol in human history because it marks the truth. That we are more committed to the grace, the love, and the call of our God than even to our own lives. To be faithful to Jesus Christ does not mean that we hold the fort. It means we storm the gates of hell and the will of God for our lives is not, it is not an insurance plan. It's a daring plan. I just think that far too many of us, myself included, live our lives as if the goal 
is to arrive safely at our deaths. And all of this, by way of saying welcome to our new sermon series. It's called All In. And it's exactly what it sounds like. This three-week series is an opportunity for us as followers of Jesus Christ to take an inventory of God's call on our lives and to recognize that Jesus does not call us to be safe. He doesn't call us to do that which is easy. He calls us to live lives that transform the world. He calls us to be all in. I'm going to do something now that is perhaps inadvisable. And though I've prefaced it this way every time I've told this story this morning, I've still had some help from folks after the worship services. I'm going to tell you a story that involves military history. And you may say, well, why is that a big deal? Because I've got like 700 military historians at Ebenezer Church, okay? And so each time someone has helped me with the story, and I've appreciated that, and you're welcome to do that as well, but here's the, the best version I know. There's a guy by the name of Colonel Joshua Chamberlain. Colonel Chamberlain was uh, part of the 20th Maine Infantry during the Civil War. And he found himself in control, uh, in command rather, of 300 troops with an order to hold a hilltop. But it wasn't just any hill, it was Little Round Top. And the, that hill emerges from a plain and a, a battlefield by the name of Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. Well, he was, he was given the command to hold, hold the high ground. And the reason it was so important to hold the high ground is because a number of military historians would tell you that if the Union had ceded the high ground of Little Round Top that day, they very likely would have then lost the battle. And if they lost the battle of Gettysburg, there was a better than average chance that the Union was actually going to lose the war. So Chamberlain was given an important job. He had 300 men under his command. Five different times that day, the rebels charged up the hill. Five different times that day, Josh Chamberlain and his troops fought them back. After the fifth charge, he took an inventory of his troops. He had 80 troops of his originally 300 left. Everyone else had been killed or wounded. When they took a further inventory, they discovered that not only did they have 80 troops, but amongst them in total, they had 80 bullets. But it's what Josh Chamberlain did next that commemorates him in history. He said, he said, I didn't have the strength to play defense, so I attacked. Josh Chamberlain ordered the charge. And history tells us that in the course of the next five minutes, his 80 soldiers took over 4,000 rebel prisoners with their 80 bullets. Years later, after serving as the governor of Maine and being awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, Chamberlain was asked to remark about that day on Little Round Top. And here's what he said. I had deep within me the inability to do nothing. I had deep within me the inability to do nothing. I knew I may die but I would not die with a bullet in my back. The inability to do nothing. Two weeks ago, I talked about how Jesus Christ stood on the steps. The, the steps of the, the just outside the southern wall of Jerusalem. They're called the teaching steps. You can go visit them today. In fact, we did on our trip. 
It was there that Jesus Christ picked a fight with the Pharisees in the final day of his life. It was there 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ told us to charge when we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, we see an inability to do nothing. He turned the tables over in the temple. He confronted hypocrisy. There was a story, there's a story in the Bible about a funeral possession that breaks up because of Jesus walks beside it and raises the person who's, who's dead from the dead. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ told us to charge and he has never, he has never sounded the retreat for his church. It's part of the reason I love the story so much that was read for us by Eric today. A story about a woman who, though her society said it was inappropriate for her to do so, a woman who would not be denied the opportunity to sit next to her Savior's feet. I want to invite you, if you would, to grab your Bibles, a Bible nearby, and turn with me to Luke chapter 7. I want to read some of that passage with you today, beginning in verse 38. Luke chapter 7, verse 38. If you didn't bring your Bible and you don't care to open a pew Bible to one, you're welcome to follow along on the screens as well. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to bathe his feet with her tears to dry them with her hair. She continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who was touching him, that she's a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? What an important question. Do you even see her? Did you really take time to look? Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. The one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Sometimes I wonder if one of the chief problems in our lives isn't that we have been forgiven too little or more correctly think that we have been forgiven too little. We grew up, many of us, we went to, we went to college, we, we went into the military. Many people in this room went to, are in the military or have been in the military. You've sacrificed, you became teachers. We have people in this room who are upstanding members of society. So too was the Pharisee. And he absolutely missed it when God was sitting at his own table. I wonder sometimes if we can get so caught up in our virtuous decisions, the virtuous decisions we've made throughout our lives, that we can start to think of ourselves of righteous of our own accord. And certainly as as more righteous than the people around us. But here's the problem with such thinking. The only righteousness that really matters in this world... The only righteousness that really matters in this world is God's righteousness and absolute righteousness. 
And in that absolute righteousness, there's a binary state. Either we are absolutely righteous or we are not absolutely righteous and we are not absolutely righteous. No matter how many good decisions we've made along the way, I've illustrated it before this way. It was two and a half years ago. I'm counting on you to have forgotten it. So here we go again. What do you get if you take a gallon of raw sewage and add a teaspoon of milk? What do you have? Raw sewage, right? Anybody want to disagree with that? Okay, all right. Now, what happens if you take a perfectly pure gallon of cold milk and you put just a teaspoon of raw sewage in it? Then what do you have? Raw sewage. You see, when the standard is absolute perfection, any imperfection is ruinous to the whole. One of the greatest dangers, I think, the people in this room here on the edge of Northern Virginia in Stafford, one of the greatest dangers I think we face is teaching ourselves, telling ourselves that we are righteous. And if you think I'm up here talking about this because I've figured it all out and I have all the answers, let me tell you something. I served as an officer in the Air Force. I serve as lead pastor of the most amazing church in the state of Virginia. And my worry is that I will get so caught up trying to act like I'm good that I'll forget I'm not. I'm sinful, I face fear, I face desires, I face unrighteous anger because I drive on Interstate 95. Can I get an amen? I am a sinful person. And you know what? Like you, like you, I can wear masks that try and cover, because I'm supposed to be right. Like I kind of, I kind of get paid to be a good Christian, right? And so I got to wear those masks. I got to wear those masks. And sometimes because I wear those masks, I can start to believe the mask. I can start to believe that I am more righteous than I am. And I can think condemning thoughts about other people. And I know I'm not alone. I know you've done this too. And when we come to that moment in our lives, maybe we're not really to take off the mask for other people, but when we come to the moment in our lives, we're willing to be ready and honest, even if it's just between ourselves and God, when we take off that mask and we're honest about who we are, we realize that we have not lived up. And in that moment, in that moment. Our faith gets so simple. There are really only two things that God is asking of us when we really, really see ourselves for who we are. And the first thing is for us to cling to grace. And the second is for us to take action. God calls us to cling to grace and to take action. Step one, clinging to grace is the absolute conviction that I don't have all the answers. I've got all kinds of questions and that I have a past that's hurt me and hurt God. It's hurt other people. It's the conviction that I have one hope. It is the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. And you know what? There's good news about this clinging to grace thing. God helps us along the way. Now, it may not feel like good news when we're going through it, but there are some times in our lives where God allows us to experience tests. You might say, well, that doesn't sound like any fun at all. Well, oftentimes it is not. I want to be perfectly clear. I'm going to talk about tests in just a moment, but I want to be clear about what I'm not saying. I am not saying that the living God tempts us. Temptation is language associated with sin. God doesn't have anything to do with sin except forgiving it. 
Nor am I saying that God deals with the consequences of our sin or perpetuates the consequences of our sin. For example, the great consequence of sin is death. I don't believe that God caused somebody in your life to die in order to put you through a test. Sin and death are realities in our lives. God does not cause them. What God will do from time to time is allow us to be tested. Testing helps us strengthen our reliance on grace. We see it all throughout the Bible, but one of the most compelling stories about someone being tested is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac had waited until he was 100 years old before God blessed him with that little boy. Abraham had waited until he was 100 years old before God blessed him with a little boy named Isaac. Isaac was the apple of Abraham's eye. And God saw that and God knew it. And, And so one day God said to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, to the land of Moriah and sacrifice him there on the mountaintop. I will show you. It's a heart-wrenching story. As you read it, you realize that God was never going to allow any harm to come to that child. It was a test. In fact, the Bible says it was a test. And in the course of all of this, we can say, oh my goodness, God, how could you do something like that? We can put God on trial. I just... I want to note the profound arrogance of human beings who think it's our role to put God on trial. It was a test. God put Abraham to the test because God needed Abraham to understand that his life could not be centered on Isaac. God loved Abraham too much to let him center his life on Isaac. God loved Isaac too much to let Abraham center his life on Isaac. God put Abraham to the test for the same reason God allows us to endure testing. It helps us to more fully rely on God's grace. The fact that God tests us is a tremendous, tremendous gift because it brings us greater clarity about where our lives are anchored and centered. We must cling to grace. And we must take action. And the action I'm talking about here is not the action of social justice or volunteerism. Those are important, but they're secondary actions to the primary one that I'm discussing today. We must cling to grace and we must take the action of placing Jesus Christ at the center of our lives. I want to do something a little bit unorthodox with you today. I want to invite you uh, again to, to grab a scripture. I'm going to, I'm going to read uh, the, the scripture passage that we're going to look at next Sunday. It's from Luke chapter 14, begins in verse 25. I want to read through this with you. Just reflect on it for a moment with you. And then I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to join with me throughout this week and every single day to read this passage this week. It is the call of Jesus Christ on our lives to go all in. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25 through verse 23. Now large crowds were traveling with him and he turned to them and said, whoever comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life cannot be my disciple. Wait a minute. Is that what Jesus actually said? Well, what Jesus actually said was the word misei, M-I-S-E-I. And it can be translated as hate. It can also be translated as to love abundantly more than or abundantly less than as the case is. 
Anyone who comes to me and doesn't love others less than me is what Jesus is saying. In verse 27, whoever does not carry the cross and... Wait, hang on a second. I just want to point this out. You know what Jesus is really saying here? He's asking a question. He's asking, are we going to love the gift more than the giver? It is the single greatest, most regular temptation in our human existence to love the gift more than the giver. The Bible has a word for it. It's called idolatry. It's any time we put part of the creation above the creator. And we can do it in all kinds of ways. We can try and place our spouses at the center of our lives, our children at the center of our lives, our, our, our careers, our educations, our, our money, our cars, our houses. There are all kinds of things we will try to center our lives on. And Jesus says that can't be the way it is. That can't, that's not a healthy way to do it. Don't do it that way. I'm telling you how to do it. Put me at the center. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all will see it and begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Well, what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down and first consider whether, he's, whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciples if you do not give up your possessions. Jesus says in this passage, Luke Chapter 14, 25 to 33, I commend it to you every single day this week. Jesus says there is a cost associated with following him. And very simply, that cost is everything. So pastor, you're saying I need to leave my husband or my wife or my kids behind? No. What Jesus longs for is for us to make him the center of our lives. That's, that's how God created us. To live with God at the center of our lives. And when we love the gift more than the giver, God is not the center of our lives. Nothing will be in balance. Nothing will be in balance until Christ is at the center. I was looking at some survey results this week. A survey that we here at Ebenezer did back in September of last year. Had over 300 people fill out the survey. It was really a wonderful survey. Very affirming to so many of the ministries and missions that you all carry out around here each and every day. God bless you uh, for being that kind of church. We learned a lot from the survey and I'm grateful for it. I just want to reflect on something that I saw. I appreciate the honesty of people. One of the things I saw was that about 20% of the people who took the survey said they read their Bibles daily. 20%. 20%. Two out of ten, one out of five, 20%. And then so often we wonder why our lives are out of balance. If our lives are not centered on Jesus Christ, they will never be in balance. Now I know what you're saying. You say, Pastor, what happened to us being the beautiful and beloved children of God? We like that sermon a lot more. I think we are. But sometimes I forget to act like it. And maybe you do too. This is a great place, by the way, to mention that we don't have to do this alone. February 26th is Ash Wednesday. It's the day that together we journey with Jesus Christ towards the cross. Today we begin that journey. 
And throughout the season of Lent, which begins on, on uh, Ash Wednesday, it's the custom here at Ebenezer Church to engage in a church-wide Bible study, a study of, of a, a book study of some sort that's centered on our spirituality. And this year's book is a book called Get Real. And I just want to encourage you, if you're not in a small group of some sort, I want to encourage you to get in one because it is a, a form of support. It's, it's a group of people who are called by God to become all in, and we help each other to strive to do that. So I, I want to encourage you, if you, don't, if you don't have a small group already, join, even if it's just for this season of Lent. The way you do that is by stopping by the connection desk after worship or checking in online if you're joining us online today. But we'd love to get you signed up for this study. Together, we take steps towards centering our lives on Jesus Christ because if we don't, if we don't, we are like the church of Laodicea. I'm going to ask you to do something and I'm sorry. I need you to look in your Bibles one more time, okay? I'm a pastor. It's a heck occupational hazard to ask people to look at their Bibles a lot. But I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. In the first few chapters of Revelation, what we find is that Jesus is writing letters to different churches, seven different churches across the region of Asia Minor. That's the western part of Greece, of, of Turkey rather. And and the final letter he writes is at the end of Revelation chapter 3. It's to the church of Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3 verse 15 says this, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's, that's a kind of famous verse right there, a warning against being a lukewarm Christian. But it's what comes next that I wanted all of us to hear. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing Doesn't that sound like Stafford? I mean, we're one of the top 20 wealthiest communities in the United States of America, the wealthiest country in the history of the world. I'm not trying to get on you or or myself. But it sounds like us. We might say something like, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. But look at what comes next. Do you not realize you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked? Therefore, I counsel you, buy the gold from me that's refined by fire, so you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Today, today we get to decide. If we will cling to grace, even though it costs us our self-righteousness. And if we will take the action of centering our lives on Jesus Christ, bring us into balance. In the spring of 1519, Hernan Cortez set sail for the eastern shore of Mexico. He landed later that year. What Cortez did in Mexico is regarded by many historians as being a travesty. I'm not here to argue that point. But rather, there is an interesting story about a leadership decision Cortez made. You see, early in the mission, many of the troops that Cortez led had become dissatisfied. They wanted to return to their native land of Spain. And so Cortez gave an order exactly 500 years ago this year that still resonates, even half a millennia later, He ordered his officers to go out into the bay and burn all of the ships. 
They had a mission to fulfill. And going back was simply not an option. We have a mission to fulfill, church. Going back is not an option. When Josh Chamberlain faced the options of doing nothing or doing something, he decided to charge. I think that's what God has called us to do all throughout our spiritual lives, to charge. We need to charge towards our marriages. We need to charge towards our health, towards our addictions. We need to charge towards our kids and our kingdom causes. But it starts... It starts by charging towards Jesus, by clinging to grace and taking the action of putting him at the center. And so I ask the question, is today today the day that you would say to God, I don't know what tomorrow brings and I don't know what it will mean for my job or, or my family or anything, but I know I need you at the center of my life. And so today, Lord Jesus... I am all in. And if this is your day, if this is the day you start to cling to grace, if this is the day you say, I'm going to do everything I can to make Jesus Christ the center of my life, I want to invite you to pray with me. Holy God, there have been so many mistakes that we've made. So many times we've failed you and others and even ourselves, we've sinned. But maybe the greatest sin is to tell ourselves that we were okay. To lie to even ourselves about the mask that we were wearing. But God, when we look behind them, when we see the truth, we realize we have not been absolutely righteous. We haven't even been close. That we are in desperate need of help and you're the only one that can save us. So help us this day, O oh God, to cling to your grace. Cling to your grace. And then to place you at the center of our lives. Not to the exclusion of loving anyone else, but so as to bring our lives into balance. Our hearts will not rest until they rest in you. Gracious, loving God. Thank you for welcoming us home. Thank you for giving us your grace. Thank you for being our center. For giving us love and belonging and purpose for all of your many blessings now and as long as we draw breath. Help us to live with gratitude and thanksgiving. Help us to be all in. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.